on today's show. Oh yeah, so it's interesting. That project just blew up. Um, I have to tell you a secret though. I have only done it once. People often come oh, really? to me and say, well, I'll tell you why. I'll tell you why in a minute, why I've only done it once. But here essentially is what it is so that the listeners will understand. Um, I gave the students uh, uh, in these this class um, envelopes with $5 in them. And each team was told they could plan as long as they wanted over the course of a week. But as soon as they opened up the envelope, they had two hours using this $5 as starting capital mm. to make as much money as possible. Mm. And so, you know, the obvious types of things that people would do would be, okay, have a lemonade stand or a car wash mm. or a bake sale. Mm -hmm. But the students, and so I knew you could do something with it. I knew that it was right. there th that we weren't going to have a total disaster. Right. But the teams were in a creativity class, right? So I really <laughs> right. encouraged them to think of value very broadly and to think of different creative ways they could approach this. Five, four, sometimes wonder why this whole crazy thing that I get to do works. <laughs> I, I teach people through creating a book or a podcast season or a video show or an event. And, and sometimes I sit there and say like, I mean, I know it works, but I'm not totally sure why. Uh, on today's episode, I get to talk to Tina Selig. Tina is an amazing human. Um, she's a professor at Stanford, and she's also one of the leading thinkers and researchers on the concepts of creativity. And what I loved about our conversation is we actually get to unpack some of the reasons why she believes that this concept of teaching through this creation event really works. We talk about kind of the platform that it creates, the way that it makes us think, the way that it makes us stretch ourselves, and perhaps most importantly, why it is so powerful as a tool to help people stand out today. Um, she's amazing. She's got a ton of books out there, a ton of tools. She's created resources. And really, if you're someone who's trying to say, I don't quite know how to unlock my full creativity, buy one of her books, check it out. She's an amazing person. Um, and for most importantly for me, I think that I got a chance to understand why this principle of a creation event does work. And, and I do think that it's one of those things that is teachable, is repeatable, and every single one of us can use it to transform our trajectory. It's a great conversation. I'm excited to have Tina on. And ladies and gentlemen, Tina Selig. All right, everyone. This is a real treat for me because, Tina, we've known each other since I think Steve Blank introduced us maybe almost a decade ago. And uh, it's been, I have to say, today, I feel like you are like the Pied Piper of creativity. Everyone now like sort of is, is sort of to really like want to dive into this one. And you've kind of been like the person who's at the center of all of this. So it's awesome. I'm super excited to hang out. Well, that's very flattering. There are lots <laughs> of people who are interested in this topic and I've learned from so many other people. I'm going to call you the Pied Piper if you don't mind. I'm just going to, we're going to go for it. Okay. So um, one of the things I love about what this is, is I do think that there is maybe, maybe as much as anything, there's kind of this new awareness of how not everyone feels like they're sort of scratching that creativity. They're sort of missing those pieces. And there was a study that I think I'm sure you saw that Adobe put out said that 75% of people believe they are not living to their creative potential. Um, why do you think that is? Like, why is there today this awareness that people aren't realizing that creative potential? It's such an interesting question, isn't it? Now, of course, probably people feel the same way that they're not living up to their athletic potential or not living up to their intellectual potential. So I, I think you can look at it as part of a spectrum. Um, obviously, we all need to make choices about where we put our time and attention. But regarding creativity, I think 
The biggest issue I see is some really big, huge problems in our education system. And I'm certainly not the first person to point this out. Um, Unfortunately, Mm -hmm. the way we teach is we teach in a way that we need to have very clear metrics about whether someone has learned something. And it's really difficult to measure creativity. It's hard to measure other things like ethics and love and compassion. Mm -hmm. And so, we don't teach these things. And and it's, it's a real problem. Because if we're only teaching things that can be measured, we're going to lose the skills that uh, are so really critical to being a full human being. Mm-hmm. Now you, so you say that all, and you are also though, like, you're a PhD in neuroscience. So you're, you're, you know, there is this like, you know, and, and I'm married to an academic, so I, I sort of really understand some of these challenges of like the rigor and the data and things like that. Is it a challenge that you are sort of now playing in this place where you have the, those two worlds that you're sort of trying to think between? Yeah, well, one of the things that's really interesting about neuroscience is that it was the first time in my life, I was at the end of my sophomore year of college, the first time in my life where I was given an open-ended problem Hmm. with no right answer, Hmm. where my professor said to, to the class, listen, there's this part of the brain, we don't know what it does, how might you design some experiments? Hmm. to figure out. And really, my brain exploded. Uh, <laughs> I, I, I just thought I had, it took that long in my academic experience to get to a point where someone was asking me to come up with my own fresh ideas. Hmm. And I think that we should be baking that into education much, much earlier. And mm-hmm. we can do it. Uh, the problem is it's, it's shifting the way we think about teaching uh, to let people's own interests and drive and curiosity lead them because once you get that thrill of discovery it is addictive and mm-hmm. we should be striving to give people those experiences early on it will drive their own education i mean think about it young kids are really really curious yeah they don't have to go to school to be curious to learn right. how to walk and talk and engage with the world because they're so curious they're experimenting and figuring out what works. Right. So we should be tapping into that natural process as opposed to sitting kids down, you know, in chairs and rows and columns and giving them multiple choice tests with one right answer. Mm-hmm. And and in one of your books, you talk about this this uh, five dollar experiment that you that you run. And I have to tell you, I I now teach this in my MBA class that I get to teach, and it. Perhaps it's the thing that I'd say blows people's minds the most because it is this like crazy little thing. Could you tell a little bit about your, your the five dollar um, test you run and what you, what you sort of you've learned and see, seen from them to to do it? Oh yeah, so it's interesting that project just blew up. Um, I have to tell you a secret though. I have only done it once. People often come oh, really? to me and say, well, I'll tell you why. I'll tell you why in a minute why I've only done it once. But here essentially is what it is, so that the listeners will understand. Um, I gave the students uh, uh, in these this class um, envelopes with $5 in them. Mm-hmm. And each team was told they could plan as long as they wanted over the course of a week. But as soon as they opened up the envelope, they had two hours using this $5 as starting capital mm-hmm. to make as much money as possible. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, the obvious types of things that people would do would be, okay, have a lemonade stand or a car wash mm-hmm. or a bake sale. Mm-hmm. But the students, and so I knew you could do something with it. I knew that right. it was it was there that 
we weren't going to have a total disaster. Right. But the teams were in a creativity class, right? So I really <laughs> right. encouraged them to think of value very broadly and to think of different creative ways they could approach this. So the teams that were most successful realized that the $5 was actually a limitation, yep. that their yep. skills were and the opportunities around them were worth much more than that. So they actually realized that the $5 was a, a red herring and mm-hmm. they needed to ignore it. And so mm-hmm. they started doing things like bike tire pressure monitoring and pumping up tires in the middle of campus or hmm. setting up photo booths at a dance contest or um, selling restaurant reservations, you know, on a busy night in Palo Alto. And, but the most impressive team was a team that realized that the $5 and the two hours were not necessary. And they realized mm. that um, the three-hour pitch time in class was their most valuable asset, and they sold it to a company who wanted to recruit the students in the class. Really? So, this, yeah, the, so the teams basically made everywhere from, you know, uh, $50 to $650. Wow. And most of the teams made a couple hundred dollars. But yep. the most interesting thing that came out of this was that they realized that there were opportunities everywhere. They're walking through a sea mm-hmm. of opportunities every single day, and it was up to them to take off their blinders and to see them. Now, you might ask why I only did it once. Right. Because when I do projects in my classes, I realize that if I do the project again, I am going to be anchored by what the <laughs> previous teams did, right? Hmm. So now I have an idea of, well, they should sell restaurant reservations or they should sell the time in class or right. they should, you know, and also the stories get out about what people do. Yep. So I also felt kind of frustrated that I was measuring value in dollars and money as opposed to value more broadly. Mm, so the next time yeah. I gave it to the students, I just gave them a handful of paper clips or rubber <laughs> bands or water bottles. And uh, each time they were told to create as much value as possible, value measured any way they wanted, starting with this material. Interesting. And, and honestly, the results have blown, blown my socks off. We've, right, I've run right. this all over the world. And uh, hmm. it is a very empowering experience yeah. for people who get to you know, stretch their imagination this way. So I will tell you, so I, I have stolen this from you and do it. I, I only do a dollar and, and 45 minutes though. So I put a different constraint on them. Oh, I have great. no planning. But let me tell you that my favorite story that's ever happened out of it is you can now add to your Rolodex of things you've inspired. Um, I gave the same assignment and uh, this is a group of undergraduates and they kind of like just, I tell them they have to get out of the room too. So the requirement is to add another little, just energy wise, I guess an hour and get out of the room. So one of the teams goes back to their dorm room and is walking up down the halls and realizes that their neighbor is actually the, Trojan condom uh, rep for the campus and literally says for the $1 I gave them that they would sell them 1,500 condoms. So they go out and they have this now, the box of 1,500 condoms and they've got 45 minutes. So they're walking around trying to wait, sell. Wait, wait, they got the box of condoms for a dollar? Yes. Is this because they're promotional? Okay. So for a dollar, they got okay, the, okay, okay. the 1,500 condoms. And so they start out okay. and they got these 1,500 condoms and they're like, well, we'll go sell them. And they said that was the most awkward conversation ever. Georgetown being a Jesuit college, super weird for them. So they were like, well, this is weird. So then they had this brilliant idea of saying, you know, what goes, where would someone want to buy condoms? And they realized that, 
maybe they should go to a liquor store, which I guess, again, go to these, uh, these enterprise, enterprising undergraduates. They went to the liquor store and the guy there happened to say, you know, listen, that's a great idea. I will trade you a hundred condoms for two, uh, for $300 worth of alcohol, your choice. So this group literally walks back in an hour later with a box of 1400 condoms they have left and a wheelbarrow full of liquor that they've just gotten. Um, that was the most creative outcome I've ever seen so far. Wow, that's an interesting <laughs> story. I'm sure the university was delighted by this. <laughs> so of the so sex, happy. Sex hear, and yes. drugs and rock and roll. Yeah. <laughs> All those things. Uh, but kudos to them for figuring out. And and I will say the kid who who uh, who you sort of hatched this entire plan to the sense of like being creative and stuff like that. He sort of used some of these same things. He got himself as a finalist on Shark Tank, and he used some of these same like to your point like. The, you never know what ideas or opportunities around you. So it's the same creative hustle to uh, get to be a finalist in the, in the Shark Tank uh, process. So there you go. Oh my goodness. I love that. In fact, one of my colleagues down in Chile, who's very innovative, he always said that there are a million dollars in every room it's mm. up to you to find it. That is great. And I think it's, and of course, that is a metaphor for there are mm-hmm. opportunities everywhere. And you, this is essentially the things that I teach. It's mm-hmm. about seeing problems as opportunities, about learning how to leverage resources and to make things happen. Mm-hmm. And in fact, that's the way I view entrepreneurship. It's mm-hmm. not about making money. It's about making things happen mm-hmm. and understanding how to turn those problems in the world into opportunities. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So you, it's really an interesting thing that you talk about. And, and as I, I think you and I are sort of somewhat trying to do the same thing of teach young people how to like not be afraid to be creative and all these sorts of things a little bit. You write in the start of, start of one of your books, you, you talk a little bit about this letter that you found to yourself when you were 20 and sort of like just what it was like to deal with yourself as a 20 year old. What do you see in, in um, sort of looking back on yourself and what you see in 20 years today that like you think is part of the, the mental block that holds us back from sort of realizing that creative potential? Yeah. Finding that letter was amazingly mind-bending. My book, What I Wish I Knew When I Was 20, had come out, you know, a couple of weeks earlier. And I got a letter from an old friend who I knew when I was 15 years old saying, is this the same Tina Seelig I knew when I was 15? You know, we went to the summer school. (laughs) And uh, I knew I had some letters from him Mm -hmm. in a box. It was like the one thing my parents saved for me when they moved was this box of letters. And I'm going through this box of letters. And of course, I found his letters, but I found this one letter I had written to myself on the eve of my 20th birthday. I mean, can you imagine my book, What I Wish I Knew When I Was 20, came out two weeks earlier. Really? And now oh. I find a letter 30 years later that I'd written that I completely <laughs> forgot about. Yeah. And the thing that was amazing is that the letter talks about um, how lost I was and how I had such incredible aspirations mm-hmm. and had no idea how to reach them. And yeah. it was this anxiety about going into this big wide world, mm-hmm. not really knowing where to start, even though I had some idea of where I went up. And in fact, I, I would argue that our school system, again, is not tuned to allow you to do this because it doesn't teach you to deal with uncertainty. And the world is full of uncertainty. In fact, I, I'm a huge believer that you should celebrate uncertainty because yes, yes. would you want to live in a world where you were given a script for your life? Probably <laughs> not. You know, the uncertainty opens up the doors to all sorts of possibilities. But looking at that was just a, such a reminder that the young people that we teach yeah. are really yeah. often struggling to figure out how they're going to get from where they are to where they want to go. You know, you have you have the, the benefit of uh, a third 
30 year look back in a letter that was sort of you, you wrote with a pre-internet era. You might have sent yourself an email uh, today. Do you think you think things are different? I mean, some people always say, oh, gosh, it's worse. It's whatever it is. But h- how do you think today's difference of sort of social media and Internet and all those things, not to like blame them, but has changed the way this uncertainty manifests itself? Well, I would actually say that the, two things. One is I think it's the same. I think yeah. the students I teach, and of course, the response I've gotten to the books I've written indicate to me that young people are also struggling with some of the, the same issues of, right. of trying to figure out how are they going to um, live their dreams mm-hmm. and and manifest what they hope to. Um, I think the internet is a double-edged sword, but from a positive perspective, we didn't back then have access to all the information, all the resources. Yep, I, I mean, I was interested in neuroscience, for example, as a mm-hmm. kid. I was really interested in the brain. You know, the only way I got access to learning about it is reading my parents' medical encyclopedia. <laughs> and that was the only information I had. You know, I got like, okay, this is how you do right. brain surgery. I'm like reading the medical encyclopedia. So now, if you have any curiosity, you can follow it in all different ways. Mm-hmm. And so, I think we have access to people. We have access to ideas. Is, um, that we never had access before, mm-hmm. and uh, I, I think that we're we're in a really special time that way. Mm-hmm. Do you do you find that um, one of the things I always found there's this sort of famous statement from uh, Steve Jobs where he says that his employees could never be creative unless they felt psychologically safe. Do you feel that like there's that is there is is that at all different today? Do people feel like because I know that there is this sort of sense that people are. I see it all the time and I'm not sure it's different or not. I don't know. But like the sense of like, I'm worried about being judged all the time. Is you that- know what? Do- yes, I, I really agree with you. In fact, I, I'm going to be really honest. I feel the same way. You know, when I wrote, when I wrote my book, What I Wish I Knew When I Was 20, it essentially is a letter to my son who was turning 20. And so there was a lot, I didn't have the idea that I had this enormous audience who was going to be reading it and judging it. Yeah, it's true. Now, I find, you know, the trolls out there, you know, you uh-huh. write a blog post, you do something, you put a video, you write a book, and anybody can say something snarky. And it's really mm-hmm. um, upsetting, actually. And um, mm-hmm. I don't know how to deal with it, because mm-hmm. if you're a sensitive person, one mm-hmm. negative comment can really rip you to the core. Yeah, and yeah. You know, you you feel like you know what? I don't actually want to put anything out there anymore. So, uh, how do you deal with this with your students? I I, I know that it, it's something that we all have to really think about. How do we how do we create things mm-hmm. which may which is a very vulnerable thing to do, knowing that there are all these people who don't know and love you yep. who can judge you? Yeah. Well, I'll, I'll tell the first thing I'll say is I, uh, I I always go and and sort of try and be pretty transparent with my students. So I I you know I put this re- this weird crazy class together where they write books and then I I shared like how for me that purpose and direction I felt really positive and good about it. Um and and I put it out there and literally what the first response I got back was um this is you know why are you teaching entrepreneurship you failed at your last company. And I was like, well, you're wrong. It's actually my last two companies. But regardless, that's not that's not here or there. But like at first when I saw it, I was like, what a, you know, who is this person? Like what are they saying? Why are they saying it? Why are they judging me? But I realized that actually the reason that I was sort of in a place to sort of grow was because I embraced and was public about the failures and way to share with others. And being open about those things I think was powerful. So I, I think at least for me, it, the first thing that I try and do is is try and share my own failings with people, not try and like be this perfect perfect person. And I think that there's some a little bit of magic in that is to say like, listen, we're going to screw up shit together, and it's going to be great. But just sort of be okay with that. And that's been the first thing is that sort of we're all of this together. And I think there's some research that uh, shows 
if you want to inspire creativity in a group, the best thing you can do is be self-deprecating. The leader of the room self-deprecate themselves <laughs> is a is a is a secret. Well, it, it's interesting in um, my classes and also in my books. I, I share a project I do with my students where I have them write failure resumes, mm, yep. their biggest screw ups, personal, professional, and academic. And in writing this book, um, I realized I needed to show an example. So you know, I thought, okay, I can't put my husband's in. <laughs> <laughs> I better put my own. So I, you know, wrote this failure resume and put it in in this book. And it's, you know, when you let people know that, yeah, I'm not perfect. And in fact, it's not just to diffuse criticism. Right. It's to make you realize, people realize you're human. I mean, mm-hmm. honestly, every single day, I have something that I mm-hmm. add to my failure resume. Mm-hmm. Because <laughs> if you're putting yourself out there, you're going to make mistakes. Yeah. And, uh it, the key is to extract the learning from them. Right. Uh, I'm a huge believer of not calling them failures, but to calling them data. Mm-hmm. You know, as a scientist, when yeah. you do an experiment and the results come back different than you anticipated, that's actually really interesting. Mm-hmm. And so the key is to mine your failures for data so that you can come away and learn something. Mm-hmm. If you if you don't do that, it's much more likely you're going to keep repeating the same mistakes. Yeah. Yeah, we did that. I, there's a, we, we, you know, with, with this process of creating a book, as you know, it's sort of this, it is this process of constant failure there. They reach out to over a hundred people to wind up hopefully getting 10 to 15 people to sit down and be willing to do an interview. And so I always tell this story. I always have them tell stories of like how much, how tough it is, the failures they have. And this one kid, Dylan walks in and says, I just landed the, um, the founder of SoundCloud to interview my book. He has a book that he's putting out about music. And he's like so happy about it and, and everyone's celebrating him. And I go, but Dylan, tell him the other part about it. And he's like, oh yeah, well, I have a hundred and I sent 176 emails and this is the only guy who said yes. So I think, you know, you also sort of have to make sure that we, we, we talk about this process of learning as like the, the whole thing isn't the outcomes. It's sort of the process to get there. And there's little funny pieces along the way. Yeah. And I, I, think that's really, really important because often we only see the result and it yeah. looks magical, but right, it's right, right. It's magical. Like this book automatically, yeah. a movie automatically ended up being made and, or this company automatically, yeah. you know, went public, you know, or got sold. And you think, no, 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 no. You need to look at the whole story <laughs> because this is a very right. complicated path with lots of twists and turns and lots of surprises. But I'm a huge believer that you can make your own luck and that there are lots mm-hmm. of levers mm-hmm. you have to make yourself luckier. One was like the student, your student Dylan, he sent, mm-hmm. you know, over a hundred emails right, and got one. So his luck came from trying lots mm-hmm. of things to seeing which mm-hmm. one worked. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Now you, you talk about one of the things that I also enjoy about some of your, some of the work is you, you try and sort of structure this as a bit more of a process. You talk about kind of, you know, a lot of times, and I think you living in the belly of the beast at Stanford of sort of the entrepreneurial founder technology world, uh, there's all this like focus on entrepreneurship, but you take it all the way back kind of this like ideas of inspiration and creativity. Uh, Could you talk a little bit about like how you see this process from going from the very beginning all the way to, oh yeah, maybe there's a business out of this? Yes. So I realized um, in teaching classes on creativity and innovation uh, for, you know, 15 years that, um, well, it's now closer to 20, but it was around 15 years when I started realizing that not only do we use the terminology around the creative process so loosely Mm -hmm. in a way that we would never tolerate in any other field. I mean, we'd never 
tolerate the same sloppiness of language in physics or math or mm-hmm. music or even or sports? Why do we tolerate this? And so I put a stake in the ground trying to understand the process of going from the seeds of an idea through implementation, creating vocabulary and sort of relationships. And so I came up with a framework, which I call the invention cycle. Mm-hmm. And it's super simple. The idea was to make it something that was easy to learn, to teach, to master, to, you know, to practice. So the idea is that imagination is envisioning things that don't exist. Mm-hmm. Pretty straightforward. Yep. Creativity is applying your imagination to solve a problem. But it could be an everyday problem, and it could be a solution that someone actually already came up with before. That doesn't matter. Mm-hmm. Innovation, though, is applying the creativity to come up with a unique solution. Mm-hmm. Right. So the difference between creativity and innovation is that creative ideas might be u- new to you, but innovative ideas are new to the world. Mm-hmm. Entrepreneurship is applying the innovation to scale it and bring it to the world. And the reason it's a cycle is that the end leads back to the beginning in mm-hmm. order to be entrepreneurial, you need to inspire other people's imagination. Right, right. And once you have this framework going from imagination to creativity to innovation to entrepreneurship, at that point, you can start parsing it and looking what has to happen each step along the way. Mm -hmm. So the framework describes one key action and one key mindset or attitude at each step. And and hearing you say it out loud is funny. I'm just in my mind reflecting on this sort of experience that we take the students through from this book process. And it's the same. I think we call it creative processes. I think that in some ways what we're doing is getting up to the point where it's innovation, right? You're sort of publishing a book. And then for many of them, they say, well, now I have this credibility. I can, I can launch a business. But we start with this exercise of helping them just like sort of think about what they care about, this sort of self-reflection, what they're passionate about, these things that sort of don't exist. And then applying it to like, what direction do I want to explore? What problem space do I want to explore? And then over the sort of nine-month journey of creating a book, that's kind of creating an innovation, their own stake in the ground. And then after that, maybe they do decide to be an entrepreneur um, and and take it further. But I I think what I love about your framework is that nobody, not nobody, very few people actually teach that those first three steps <laughs> in terms of like well exactly exactly it. they exactly they assume that like okay you already have the idea well how did you get there this is you know the front end of the creative process that shows you know where you had to go so it's interesting because i would argue absolutely that your students are going through the invention cycle yep. so if you look at the attitudes and actions here's what it, here's what they're doing they engage with the world and they envision what might be different that's the exactly. imagination stage right they look around they go oh there's the no book or no topic or no information about X, Right. I'm going to envision that there might be something, yep. right? Okay. Then the next stage, the creative stage is motivation and experimentation. So mm-hmm. at this point, they have to tap into their motivation and go, okay, is this a topic I really care about? Yeah. Let me Change take something yeah. I care a little bit about and let me do a little experiment. Maybe I'll mm-hmm. put together a mock table. I'll start talking to some people and seeing if there's anything there. Mm-hmm. They start their, with their motivation and doing some experiments. Then they move to the innovation stage yep. they're where they're now yep. really focused on the problem And they can now start reframing Mm -hmm. it. And so then now they can look at it from a unique perspective. They've now sort of been so immersed in it that they can now come up with some unique perspectives to look at it. And then once they've come up with that, they move to the entrepreneurship stage, which is essentially when they're writing the book and selling the book, which is persistence and inspiring other people. So the persistence of writing the book and then having to inspire other people to actually engage in helping to get the word out or buying it. 
promoting it, et cetera. You've blown my mind, Dina. Now I feel so like- I think yeah, you absolutely go through this. I through it. I figured out now what it is. Yeah, this crazy thing. So that's awesome. Yeah. So the point is, you know, you could use this in your class as this yeah. framework and show them how they're moving through this and go, and here's where you are right now. Yep. And the wonderful thing about this process from my perspective is that it allows you to know where you are. Yeah, that's exactly right. when you need to go back to the beginning, sometimes you mm-hmm. go, you know what? We're stuck. Let's go back to the imagination stage. Mm-hmm. Let's go start over. So, so I have a couple last things, but I, I wanted to go a little bit on that piece about book. I mean, you're someone who's written books, multiple books. You've written, you've created games. There is this sort of sometimes this not critique, I would say, but like there's this sense that like, well, that's not really an entrepreneur. You're not really an entrepreneur if you do these things. How do you sort of counter that? Because I think you are clearly an entrepreneur in in creating a book, and I obviously am biased saying that when you create something like this, it is entrepreneurial. How do you think about this in especially in the world of like high growth startups where people say, is launching a book or doing a game or whatever it is, an entrepreneurial venture? Yeah, so it's really good question. I absolutely think it is. But it's a very unique entrepreneurial venture, mm-hmm. especially if you use a traditional publisher yep. as opposed to self-publishing. So I would say if you're self-publishing, you're actually much more of a traditional entrepreneur because you actually have to do all the production and the sales and the <laughs> right. distribution and all of that yep. stuff. The thing about the invention cycle is that, so let's let's look at this. There are some people who love to live in these different pieces. Mm-hmm. There are those people who like to envision what might be different, mm-hmm. kind of the imagination stage. There are those people who like to do the experiments and sort of solve the everyday problems. Some people who love the innovations, and there's some people love that selling, mm-hmm. right? The light. Right. I love the beginning part of this process. I don't love hmm. the entrepreneurship stage. I don't <laughs> love, um, <laughs> no, I don't love yeah. the sales and marketing and all the organizational stuff. Yeah, no. But that's why I love having a publisher because they do that. Yeah. And so I'm entrepreneurial, but I love, I think the book writing process is the first two, three steps mm-hmm. imagination, creativity, innovation. And you can hand the last step to someone else. <laughs> yeah, your co founder, so to speak. Exactly. In fact, you're it's absolutely right. I love that. My publisher is my co-founder. Mm-hmm. That's really neat. And and have you found that now that you've done, I mean, uh, this multiple times, do you find that your uh, your approach to it is more entrepreneurial? Like, do you now, you know, now on on your 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 umpteenth book, do you see this as a different process than you did the first time you went through it? You know, it's quite interesting. Um, each book has its own process. Um, some of my books sort <laughs> <Like> of children. <laughs> yeah, ex- ju- exactly. I mean, I was going to say they're just like people. Each one has there's sort of the care and feeding of each mm-hmm. one of them. Um, the what I wish I knew in as twenty wrote itself. I I wrote it in four months. It literally poured right out of me, mm-hmm. and um, really, I wrote it in four months. My next book, Ingenious, <laughs> I wrote the book. And I got to the end and said, this is no good. Hmm. And I started over and over and over and over and over (laughs) until I felt like I was, um, I'd solved a problem, Mm -hmm. like that I had actually accomplished what my objective was. Mm -hmm. Um, The, because I didn't have a framework and Mm. then I got to the end and realized I really needed to create a framework into which all the content fit. Hmm. And so I went back and did it again. When I wrote Creativity Rules, which is my most recent book, mm-hmm. um, I started with a framework. I spent a year mm-hmm. working on the framework and then wrote the book. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. each one is its own little process, just like each company is different. I would say right. that each book is different. There's a confidence you get that the process will work at the end. Right. Um, and right. yet, 
um, each one is unique and, uh, mm-hmm. and you have to approach it and sort of see where it's going to take you. Mm-hmm. I love it. Well, th- Tina, this has been so awesome. I feel like you're absolutely right. I now, uh, I now can sort of see this process in a different way. I see it sort of through the lens of the invention cycle that you talked about, which is, is, uh, it's sort of why you write a book to help someone else understand something they don't understand. And so if nothing, you just, um, uh, you helped me learn today, which is awesome. So I appreciate it. Great. Well, this has been so fun. Thank yes. you so much. Thank you so much, Tina, for hanging out. And uh, and I love all your stuff. And again, I'm still going to keep calling you the Pied Piper of creativity. And uh, you could just sort of politely say no, no, no. But it's true. You really are. Because even I have two students who were inspired by your work when they started working on their books. And I will send you both, both of them when they're published because I think they were inspired by thinking about creativity as something that they need to learn and share and and share with others. So it's really awesome stuff you're doing. Great. Can't wait to see them. All right. Thanks, Tina. 